Welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandlin. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we chat with writer, director and producer S. Shakti Dharan. After the roaring success of his first play, Counting and Cracking, Shakti is about to kick off the season for his second play, The Jungle and the Sea. Check out our episode notes for more info and for where you can get tickets. Use promo code JUNGLE50 for a special discount. We spoke with Shakti about his experiences exploring culture, history and his family's past through the art of storytelling, how his mother and his upbringing inspired his passion and the power of theatre in creating spaces to heal and share the stories that go untold. We also discussed the legacy of his first play and the message of his upcoming one, plus plenty more. This was such a deep and insightful conversation with Shakti. We're so excited for you to listen. Shakti, thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy rehearsal schedule to chat with us. My pleasure. I love your show. Thank you so much. And we'd love to dive into your upcoming play, Jungle in the Seat, in a little bit. But did you just come back from rehearsals? Because I know we're recording past 9pm right now. So firstly, (laughs) thank you for that. (laughs) And how's all the rehearsals going? My schedule goes kids in the morning, rehearsals, come back home, put the kids to bed. And um, normally then I actually spend a little bit of time talking to my wife, but instead of that, I'm talking to you guys tonight. (laughs) Oh, no, tell her we said sorry. (laughs) She knows the drill. She's cool. She's an artist as well. She's cool with it. Yeah. We might need to send a box of chocolates. I know. (laughs) She'd probably love that. Um, But rehearsals are going really well. We... um, Mm-hmm. A lot of the team involved in the Jungle and the Sea are the same team who are involved in Canning and Cracking. And Canning and Cracking was such a feat to get everyone together and to make that show happen. And so to not have to go through all that again and just have that crew already for Jungle and the Sea, mm-hmm. it feels really special. It feels like Canning and Cracking was like having to break down barriers and Jungle and the Sea is like, oh, we got a foundation here. We actually yeah. like have a new system in place that's going. So that feels really special. And the show's going well so far. Amazing. Awesome. Touch wood. That's great to hear. And we can't wait to get into it in a little bit and yeah. see the play in a couple of weeks. And I know. I'm sure the chemistry would be really special as well, right? Flowing on from Canning and Cracking because Canning and Cracking was essentially a family story. So I'm sure you feel a lot of the same closeness having some familiar faces being involved. Yeah, it's um, because these works aren't just... Obviously, we want to put on a really good story and want it to be really entertaining and put on a great show, but they're more than that as well and they have a purpose. And so I think Cutting Cracking was a way to not just for everyone to get to know each other as artists, but for everyone to get to know each other as like, this is how I feel about Sri Lanka. This is how I feel about South Asia. And we come from different walks of life and different parts of Sri Lankan and South Asian society and just to find that shared purpose. But with Jungle of the Sea, which is a more difficult show and deals with a more vulnerable part of Sri Lanka's history and more recent, it's great to have that trust between everyone already. Mm. Mm. And I think like what you've done with counting and cracking and everything is is so unique to what you typically see. So when oh, you're talking about hear. all the barriers that you had to break down... I don't know, like correct me if I'm wrong, but was it like when you first were trying to cast people, they were kind of like... What is this brown guy doing? He's writing a play and it's kind of about a touchy subject. Like, do we want to get involved and having to pitch it to people and get the right people as well to be part of it? I think the foundation's great that you've built that now after the success of Counting and Cracking to move into Jungle and the Sea. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We couldn't have done Jungle and the Sea first. Right. I think right. this play is even more sensitive. And so we needed to count in cracking first to build that foundation. But, you know, like just one story is um, there's a single East Lankan actor in Counting and Cracking. She's incredible. Um, her name's Nipuni Sharada. And during rehearsals, I found out that her mother didn't want her to take part in the play. She lives in Sri Lanka right. um, because it was written by a Tamil Sri Lankan. And she was like, what's their agenda? I don't know what they're going to do. And in Counting and Cracking, it deals with lots of things and has a whole Australian storyline. But towards the climax of the play, it goes through what happened in 1983, mm. which was a week of riots where Tamil people in Colombo were the victims. And um, I remember Nipuni saying at a Q&A after one of the counting cracking shows that they were never taught that in school, you know, and yeah. the whole process of making counting cracking had been a process of learning about a truth of her history that had been hidden from her. Mm. And during Sri Lanka's recent turmoil, economic turmoil, and the protest movement that was there, um, Nipuni was there every day, you know, that protest movement. So mm. it's just such a huge change from someone whose family was a little bit worried about her getting involved to someone who's now like just, you know, understands the intersection of storytelling and the future of her country in such a deep and profound manner and is such a big part of what's happening in Sri Lanka now. And mm. I really love that. I love that journey. And, you know, one day we'll hopefully take that show to County and Cracking and her family can watch it with her acting in it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's very interesting how stories like these fill the gaps that the classrooms or textbooks don't. Yeah. Mm. But speaking of mothers, I want to ask about your childhood. Well, I just realized that I sound like a therapist there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so back your childhood. Right. I'm not your lying childhood. in the car um, or anything. It's cool. <laughs> Uh, well, your mum is a renowned artist in her own right, especially as a Bharatanatyam dancer and teacher, you know, running her own dance school out of the home where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents have actually collaborated with her on a few different projects over the years. So mm-hmm. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, spending nights drawing or colouring or something in the corner of the practice space you nice. guys had <laughs> at home while these rehearsals were happening. Nice. What was it like growing up in that kind of environment for you? Like, I feel like it would have been quite a fascinating childhood being so immersed in the cultural art scene like you were. Yeah, Yeah. so my mother is Anand Valley. Uh, she's the artistic director of Lingalium Dance Company. She's been dancing since the age of six. And as a teenager, she toured India and Europe as a child prodigy. And wow. when she came to Australia after some time, a lot of the community convinced her to start dancing again. Um, she went through a divorce with my father and kind of dancing was the only thing she knew how to do. And she started a dance company, an academy that really just grew. And, you know, and this was back in the 90s and noughties when there were a lot less of those around. And it's become a real kind of artistically brilliant dance company on a professional scale, but also an amazing community resource for so many people because it's a way to connect back to their culture through Bharatanatyam. Mm. But for me, growing up in it, I didn't know any of that. That was actually my normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I grew up inside a dance company, you know, like she was always teaching in the garage when we were at my uncle's house and then in our dance studio when we moved here. And Carnatic music to me, which is traditional South Indian music, um, it seriously feels like normal to me. Like mm. it feels like breathing. And the stage feels like a kind of home. Right. And I think... What I really loved, though, is, and where I fell in love with the arts, 
despite my mother not wanting me to get involved in it, like all Sri Lankans, <laughs> because, you know, as my uncle used to tell me every week, it's not a real job. Um, I love that moment before the lights go down. And I found it incredible that the stage essentially felt to me like a place of freedom. I'm not sure if that's what my mother wanted me to see it as, but it fit my anti-authoritarian tendencies really well. <laughs> like the lights go down on a stage and absolutely anything can happen afterwards. Mm literally anything in the entire universe. Wow. And I really, really was drawn to that sense of possibility. And I also really liked that everyone treated the stage with respect. You know, like my uncle was often stage managing and calling the show backstage. And obviously my mom's students were like family to her and she's their guru. And, and so everyone would have all sorts of things going on and there might be arguments backstage or whatever. But as soon as everyone entered the actual stage space, it was a sacred space where everyone respected mm. it. And there's not many things like that in the world, you yeah. know, where no matter what anyone's going through, as soon as they enter a particular space, they're just on their best behavior, mm. open to anything and have a shared purpose. So those two things really hit home for me. Yeah. And I can tell now that I knew back then I wanted to be an artist, but it took a long time before I actually followed through on that because it's not a supported vocation in our community. <laughs> do, do you remember specifically what show it was? when you had that realization, like, wow, it's the moment before the performance starts that actually connects with you so deeply? Um, oh, I think it's probably when my mum was touring Australia. She was doing it as a solo dance tour. And um, I was a kid and I was told to go to the back because I might be loud, but apparently I demanded to sit near the front on my grandmother's lap. And for some of those shows, people I knew very well were the musicians and the singers. And it was just those shows. I still remember that feeling. Yeah, when the lights go down and before she started yeah, dancing. Wow. Yeah. You said that through your mum's influence and like the Bazanatum's dance school as well as Carnatic music, like just being around you as a kid, you knew you wanted to be an artist. How did you then figure out that you wanted to be a storyteller per se? I think all that happened a lot later. Um, I became. I guess, politically engaged right. in my late teens. And it was the late 90s and there was a lot of, um, like, even popular music and popular movies. It was like grunge and independent film was having its heyday. And I really kind of um, became very aware of what it meant to be engaged in politics mm -hmm. and to not take any given system in the world for granted. But then I think what happened, and I'm sure you guys will relate to this, you know, for me it was... In Australia, as a migrant, I was kind of like going, oh, I have this life at home where there's a dance school going on and a Sri Lankan community that I know well and there's that part of my life and then there's the life at uni or school where, I don't know, I probably pretend to know more about the Australian cricket team than I really want to and mm. kind of perform a assimilated version of myself and stuck in between. <laughs> um, I don't know if you would relate to that at all or yeah. even name a a show about that. <laughs> and um, then I thought, well, why aren't we telling Australia's, you know, untold stories? Mm -hmm. And why do I have to have this division between the Australia that I know and love versus the Australian storytelling that I consume or see on stage and screens? Mm -hmm. And that's where um, the political engagement that I was having through the possibility of the arts really came home to me and going, no, 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 there's a purpose here where, you know, when you can become politically aware, but you don't know what your place in it is, mm. which is very different to being politically aware and then going, no, this is the role I can play. 
Right. That became a whole thing in itself because I founded a company at that stage called Curious Works. I was young and naive and just wanted to jump into things and ambitious. And I'd studied journalism at uni, so I felt I'd done my Lankan Tamil duty to my parents and I'd done the degree <laughs> and that was it. Then I wanted to go and do what I wanted to do. But I discovered that there were systemic issues to why Australia wasn't telling its full range of stories and that the industry was very kind of locked into a pattern of telling stories from one part of Australia because that was the kinds of people that were involved in it. And it was a very homogenous group of people and they had particular ways of doing it. Mm. And so I discovered this thing called community arts. Mm. And community arts is based on the idea that communities have a lot of cultural capital, but that minority communities don't own their own cultural capital. Mm. And other communities, you know, more privileged ones, tell their stories for them and then take that capital for them. And quite often communities aren't in control of the stories about their own lives and their own future. And that there's a system of arts which gives them that power back. Mm. Um, and that's called community arts. And that's what I really got into because I realised that that was the reason Australia wasn't telling its untold stories. And I spent a long time helping communities tell their stories, working with a lot of refugee communities and First Nations communities in Australia, a good 10 to 15 years doing that leading wow. curious works and it was a long time before I was brave enough to turn the lens on myself and the Sri Lankan community. Mm. I think you brought up so many good points there. One thing that really stuck with me was the definition of an Australian story and what that truly means yeah. because I think for a long time our media landscape pushed one sort of narrative of what an Australian looks like and what an Australian story is like but you know we're all like Australian and we've all got our own unique stories that need to be shared so I think you really did kind of break that boundary through telling this story and that's something that someone else we interviewed on a podcast that I know you're quite close to Shakti uh, Shankri Chandran who is an incredible writer mentioned to us as well mm. when yeah. she took the manuscript from her first book to Aussie publishers mm. she was told you know look this is great but we're looking for Australian yeah. stories right and she was like well this is an Australian story yeah yeah, exactly right. And, you know, and the arts industry is really lagged behind, sadly. Like, I think almost one third of Australians now are either born overseas or speak a language other than English at home. Mm. But the statistical studies they've done on representation in our books and stage and screen productions are way less than 30% in terms of diversity of representation. They hover around kind of 5 or 6%. So there's a long way to go in terms of what is a publicly funded industry actually using those public funds to properly represent what Australia does. But a lot of us, I'm just one of like many, many people who've been agitating for decades in the industry and there really does feel like it's starting to bear fruit now, like it's starting to change very slowly now. And canning cracking, for example, wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. Mm. It just wouldn't have been possible. And we kind of only put it on around the same time that it was also possible. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we've spoken about canning and cracking a few times so far and I could be wrong, but I'd imagine that it's a piece of work that you're most proud of in your storytelling yeah. journey thus far. And yeah, you is. just got back from touring it over in the UK and a massive congratulations on mm, that. Amazing. Thank you. For Appreciate anyone it. who's listening who didn't get a chance to watch the play, it's an award-winning production and I'm in no way going to do justice <laughs> by trying to explain it. Uh, but it was a play that Chakti wrote and was in season in Sydney in 2019. And Maybe in its simplest sense, it explored three generations of a Tamil family across four different decades from Sri Lanka to Australia as they 
navigate and grapple with the catalyst that triggered the civil conflict and its aftermath. And um, it also unpacks the ideas of things like reconciliation and identity and power and mm. resilience and even issues about Australia's relationship with boat people and immigration. Yeah. Um, I honestly can't put to words how much the play means to me personally and like I said, my description of it is not going to do it justice. So maybe in your words, could you tell our audience a bit more about it? Well, thank you for saying that. It's um, it's always means a lot to me, the kind of deep impact it has on people. So thank you for saying that. Um, I guess the story is about a mother and a son who live in Western Sydney and are kind of bickering and love each other, but kind of happy to live separate lives and the Son falls in love with a younger woman, an Indigenous woman from North Australia at a party. And the mum has this flirtation with a Turkish air conditioner installer. And you feel like they're going to just find other ways to settle in Sydney that aren't with each other. And then a man rings on the phone and the husband of the mother that we thought was dead, we find out that he's alive. Um, and the mother refuses to speak to him. It's like a ghost has called her and the son's forced to step into that gap. Um and at that point, we go back to when the mother was a young woman and we find out all these secrets that she's been holding from her son. And her family story is completely wrapped up in the story of how Sri Lanka tries not to descend into civil war and those who try their hardest and ultimately fail at stopping that and what that means to have to leave your homeland and what that does to a family and how it is you can heal from that. My mum didn't want me to do that play in terms of the research for it and she never talked about Sri Lanka growing up like we've discussed how connected she is to Bharatanatyam and Tamil culture but I think that's what she held on to but she wasn't able to talk about our actual family mm. story or why we left Sri Lanka and that was what I wanted to know mm. like I felt like I'm sure many of you listeners would resonate like if you don't know your past you kind of hit a certain point as a migrant somewhere in your 20s where you realize that if you don't know your roots you can't really go forward so i i'm privileged i'm an artist <laughs> so i can go well i really feel this gap in my life so i'm going to do a project to solve that <laughs> and make it my next arts project but it was the first time i'd done something so personal and i, I still remember going to sri lanka against my mum's wishes uh, we hadn't really been back there since we left apart from one trip during the ceasefire that was a kind of a tourist trip and um i've still got family in sri lanka and one of my um as you know, we say uncles, but he's actually my grandmother's sister's son. Um, but an uncle gave me a shoebox full of letters. And inside that were letters written by my great-grandfather. And we read them to each other. Mm. And I learned that my great-grandfather was one of the only Tamil people in the first post-independence cabinet. Mm. And that he'd been born in Jaffna as a farmer and ended up going to English boarding school and Oxford. And then came back to Sri Lanka and was a real champion for unity and equality. But by the time he died, which was on the outbreak of civil war, he'd become a political realist and he um, no longer believed that Tamils could depend on support from the government and needed to defend themselves. And the arc of his life from optimist to realist and the fact that someone in my own family was so wrapped up in Sri Lanka's history suddenly made me realise that you could tell a family story and a country story in one. And that's how I started doing the building blocks of counting and cracking. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's a big part of the narrative, right? Rewinding and watching these things unfold through. Mm. Like what was cool for me is because of how the stage and set was designed, it felt for me a little bit like you were a fly on the wall, watching these moments mm. in history 
play out through these conversations that many people in our grandparents' generation would have had, you know, 40, exactly. 50 years ago. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I still like um, just a tiny story, like, because exactly what you said, Ahilan, one of the actors in County Cracking, he never got to meet his grandparents. Um, still remember, it was really moving. He came up to me during rehearsals one day and he said, thank you. Like, I feel like I've met my grandparents by being in these scenes with them finally. I think that's really interesting because I think I've been quite fortunate in that my parents and grandma have consciously educated my brother and I about the history of Sri Lanka and what life was like for them living there. Sure what we have. don't talk as much about <laughs> is how they felt living mm. through what they did and how they feel when they grapple with that loss, you know, 30, 40 years after leaving the country. Um, yeah. One of the things I found really special about cunning and cracking or one of the many things I should say was how it created a window for all of us to understand more about each other's experiences, mm. right? Like I got a better understanding of how my grandma's generation would have felt watching the politics of their homeland starting to shift, right? And the anxieties yeah. those in my parents' generation would have felt with the uncertainty, the conflict brought with it in their young mm. adulthood. And for them, they got that kind of lens into the identity crisis that our generation goes through. Uh, and then on top of that, I guess the other layer is for white Australian audiences. They got a window into some of the stories they don't usually get to see. I know mm. you've spoken in the past about how Cutting and Cracking was a 10-year-long project for you. And it started as a way of deepening your understanding and appreciation for your roots and your identity. Mm. But tell us a bit more about what that journey was like for you, because I'm sure it would have been overwhelming and confronting with all that you were learning about your family's past, given you were in a way sheltered from it all previously. Mm. Yeah, it was kind of like going from a drought to a waterfall. <laughs> mm. um, I felt really starved of it for so many years. And then my great aunt who lives in London, she was the first to start opening up. She's one of those aunties that like, like she's a force of nature, but also extremely generous. So she cooks constantly and um, really loves Scrabble. And so I spent <laughs> this time with her sitting in her kitchen while she cooked and played Scrabble with her just days on end talking to her. And um, I think she forgot the phone was there and that I was recording, which is always when you get the best, yeah. <laughs> you know, stories when it just becomes natural and it's, we're just on a thing. And for days we just talked. And I remember that feeling of going, my God, like I used to just know nothing. And now I'm on a small boat in a very rapid river. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to have to hold on possibly for a few years <laughs> um, and just absorb, absorb, absorb. And I just tried to become as much of a sponge as possible and be patient with trying to figure it out because, as you both know, it's probably true for any migrant, but particularly if you're Lunkin, there's no one version of any story. Yeah. <laughs> like um, it's yeah. just too trickier community, you know. And I'm not like that. I'm not the kind of person that ever believes anything the very first time I hear it, like mm -hmm. I always want to know all the possible perspectives of yeah. something. Mm -hmm. But also our families love multiple voices in drama. So even if there is something simple that happened, there'll still be 45 versions of mm -hmm. it from every different auntie and uncle and cousin. So um, so I just struck in and went like, I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to listen for a really, really long time. This amazing thing happened though, which is the more I talk to people, 
And I talked to lots of different people. I talked to ex-presidents and prime ministers, but I also talked to like asylum seekers, like in between shifts while they were like stocking shelves at Flemington markets, you know. Mm. And um, th- what I learned really was how sophisticated Sri Lankans are. <laughs> and I think it restored my sense of optimism in humans generally because political headlines and the media headlines so often have to reduce things and history books have mm. to as well. And when you actually talk to people and get a, so, you know, a, a basically a people's history of a place, people can hold many truths in their head mm. and can right. really understand the nuance and, you know, things like the tigers and singular nationalism and like people had very sophisticated nuanced understandings of all of this. And everyone was trying to then figure out what to do in their own lives, mm. you know, because of what was happening in the country. And I came away from that really believing in Sri Lankans and going, wow, like there's something to do here. There's a purpose here in terms of telling as unbiased a possible history of those decades in Sri Lanka as possible so that our entire community can gather around it, Sinhalese, Tamil, Bergen, Muslim, Hindu, Christian. And if we could all gather around a version of our past, even if not everyone agreed with every single Mm. part, but they could see that the many truths were there, then I felt we could have a shared future. And because of all this, and then Belvoir Theatre got involved and who are like one of the main theatre companies in Australia after they read the first draft. My mum was invited to come to workshops we were doing for the play and developments. And then she started to open up for the first time. I think because there were strangers in the room and she found it, it's easier to shut down your kids than it is to shut down a stranger. (laughs) And she just started dropping these pieces of information that I never heard before. Like someone would be like, oh, why did you leave Sri Lanka? And then she'd think about it, I think, probably for the first time Mm. in decades properly. And so the play started to change based on how early drafts of it were affecting the community. Mm. Um, And as my mother started to open up, the character that was inspired by her and the play started to open up. Right. And as she started to heal, the play kind of started to heal her relationship with Sri Lanka. And I learned mm. that the reason she wouldn't talk about Sri Lanka is because she was, she just loved Sri Lanka so much and she could never have imagined leaving that country. And then what happened in 1903 happened and the family made the decision to leave and the trauma of having to leave a place that you love, the only way she knew how to deal with that pain was to bury it and just not talk about it again. You know, that's how she decided as an individual. Yeah. And so the play kind of gave her a safe space to process all of that and start opening up again. Mm. And that in turn allowed the play to have the resolution it has because, you know, the effect it had on her. But that was really useful because I got to see the effect it might have on audiences, particularly Sri Lankan audiences generally, like you were saying earlier, something about the kind of effect it has on different generations. And, you know, I think as it's gone to different parts of Australia and the world, it's had that effect on lots of different Sri Lankans. Because those aren't conversations we always have with our parents and grandparents, right? Mm. So I feel like things like this help break the ice to spark those kind of conversations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's the whole point of it. Like so many families have come up to me who've seen it as families and the parents would turn to the kids afterwards and the kids would say, oh, did you go through any of that? And the parents would say, I was there for all of it, you know, and you, that's when they started talking about it on the train trip home or the car trip home. Mm. And that's definitely one of the core purpose of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's such a confronting topic and similar to your mum, how she buried it away. A lot of other people would have as well because it's so much trauma. Yeah. Whereas when you're consuming it in the form of art, it's kind of like 
may not be your story specifically, but you can see yourself in it and it it's like yes. that point that helps you think about it again. And again, like what you guys just said, start those conversations with people around you, which will also help you heal in turn, right? Like it's amazing to That's see right. that your mum found this as a way to heal and I'm sure many others would have felt similarly because yeah. when else would they be given that opportunity? Yeah, yeah. I think the arts is this amazing tool that can help people become more vulnerable in a way that's on their own terms and mm. it's particularly useful for mm. our community yeah, because absolutely. i think we're very bad at yep. vulnerability yeah. like we're great at overachieving and <laughs> yeah you know putting forward an image of success but we're not very good at actually sharing how we feel or think totally. with each other in an intimate or vulnerable manner and this is a way of doing that in a way that everyone feels comfortable with it or, or is capable of taking those slow steps towards that vulnerability mm. yeah mm. for sure and like you said It's a relatable story even for those who didn't live through it because of all the themes that are brought out in such a touching way Mm. that everyone has something to connect to. Yeah. Um, But something that was particularly special was to see our narratives on that kind of platform and being embraced by Australian theatre and Australian audiences in that way. I think sometimes in our community, and maybe this is more so with older generations, we do a really good job of attending and appreciating art in the formats that we're used to, but maybe not putting as much weight into exploring art forms outside of the traditional South Asian Mm. ones. And of course, it's always difficult as well to bridge that gap between Eastern art and Western mediums. Um, But how did you factor that into your process of developing Counting and Cracking? And I guess getting people who might not normally attend Western theatre to come and see a story that's very personal and intimate to them. What was the kind of reception to all of that? I think um, not everyone will agree with this, but for me, I think a lot of the damage that happened in Sri Lanka, it's often told about as a division between Tamils and Sinhalese. But the more I spoke to all types of Sri Lankans here and around the world about what happened and their personal take on it, the more I realised that Sri Lanka is a very interwoven country. You know, like Tamils and Sinhalese hang out a lot. All sorts of religions are side by side on the street and families and marriages and businesses and all sorts of things are quite interwoven. And what became clear to me was that what happened in Sri Lanka in a very fundamental and big way was the politics of division. Mm. It became politically expedient to sow the seeds of division between people to win electoral power. And over time, that eventually ended up resulting in war. And when I learned that, I thought that that is happening in so many countries around the world. And I felt like Sri Lanka is a cautionary tale for other countries around the world. Mm. You know, the worst consequences of Donald Trump's presidency will be decades from now because of the things he made possible in the public discourse and the division he sowed, which I don't think he believed in any of it. He just did it to win power. So early on in the development, I thought, you know, this is not just a story just for the Sri Lankan community. Mm. This has to be a story for multiple audiences at once Mm. where... We look at everything from the Sri Lankan point of view, from inside the community, but we also present our story to condemn the politics of division in any country, in any place. And the other thing I was really interested in doing was proving a concept, which is that we grew up with Hollywood films and so on. And, you know, a white American film um, from our time growing up, we found ways to identify with that. You know, we see a coming of age story of a kid in Mm. a school. They might all be white, but we still identify with it. And if all humans are equal, then the reverse should be true. We Mm. should be able to present a completely specific Sri Lankan story down to the minutest detail about our lives and everything that makes us and all our glorious specificity 
and that should be able to channel through to a universal story that anyone yeah. can relate to. Mm. And I really wanted to, to do that because that means that people come and see 19 brown people on stage and Tamil is the first language spoken in the play and then it's translated into English. So it's clear who the primary audience and story are, mm. but then they still find a way to relate to it. And so flipping that and saying that our specific story can also be universal is really important to me. Yeah. Um, so multiple audiences are really important to me and I won't go into the boring detail about the writing, but literally every single sentence in that show, I thought about what it would mean to the Sri Lankan audience and what it would mean to a non-Sri Lankan yeah. audience and that I had to speak to both at the same time. Um, right. But what I surprised me and what I loved was because I was so terrified, really, of how the Sri Lankan community would respond. Mm. <laughs> and I was so focused on that. I hadn't thought a lot about how the wider Australian community responds. Mm. But every night, people will tell me what you tell me, something about loving and also being surprised by how much other Australians were embracing the mm. show. It sold out the whole season and all sorts of Australians came, not just regular theatre goers. Like actors were like waiting in line at the bank. And the person behind would be like, I saw you last night in that show. Or like, yeah. they, you know, that plumber would come over and be like, I saw you on the stage. Wow. So it was really embraced by so many parts of Australians. And I started to put the pieces together. And over time, I realized what was happening was that it was actually an act of belonging for our community. Mm. Wow. You know, we don't show our full selves in public. We only do it at home. And we think that the Australian mainstream is another way of living, right? And putting on a show like this at a mainstream arts festival is one of the main works on at that arts festival is us showing our full vulnerable selves in public, mm. <laughs> not hiding any part of it. And then for that to be embraced by Australia as an Australian story means that that's real belonging. I think public vulnerability as opposed to private vulnerability is real belonging. Yeah. You know, if we stand alongside other people in the country equally. I had no idea about any of that. It was only through the course of the season that I started to see that happening. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's incredible. And I think, yeah, like you were talking about the universality of it. I mean, we're all human at the end of the day and we feel the same emotions at different capacities or through different means. And I think it's that relatability that probably really resonated with others, even white Australians who may not have necessarily experienced the exact storylines within the play itself, the emotions that came off the back of it or loss or being disconnected yeah. from a family member. All of that is probably what yeah. really drew people That's together. Right. I mean, a colleague of mine, this is back in 2019, he had come to, I think, the very last show for the play and he came to work the next day and was like Romy your background's Sri Lankan right like I saw this amazing play it's got <laughs> like it was he's this Scottish like white guy he's amazing yep. and he was telling me about it. I'm like oh I think like my friend like i.e. Sandon I was like I, I feel like I heard about this somewhere and he's like it was incredible and it really does resonate like you said because of the human side of it and all the emotions that came up off the back of that as well yeah. Yeah, and it connects to what Sandra was saying earlier. Uh, for example, you know, there's a story in it of a guy who comes to Australia as a refugee. And I, I didn't want to at any point, like it's bad art to say, this is what you should think about refugees, right? But all I wanted to do is go, hey, this is why people make these decisions. Yeah. Like yeah. here he is as a human. Yeah. And like these are the reasons he makes these decisions. These are the yeah. steps that he goes through to come to Australia that way. And if you present people as, you know, complex humans making hard decisions in a difficult situation then it's very hard for people not to understand mm, that you know yeah. absolutely yeah. and your point that you made before on perspective as well right like I think because like I read the transcript of the play like I mentioned to you before and you really do bring in 
different voices and different communities mm. because in six that's, different languages yeah. as well. Yeah, and that's yeah. so important because it's not yeah. it comes across as less of a bias yeah. like you're trying to push a particular agenda in front of people, but yeah. in fact you're just trying to put different perspectives together and really just recount different truths that happened about this yeah. one. Mm. No, that's yeah. really great to hear. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to do, just present those truths side by side. Yeah. Because that's life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we said before that um, Canny and Cracking just toured in the UK, which is incredible. Yeah. And your next play is coming up and we'll talk about it in a bit more in a second. But yeah. because of all the success that you found Canning and Cracking had and you were saying a couple of times before that you weren't expecting it to blow up to this point and for everyone to love mm. it as much as they did, did you feel more pressure with Jungle and the Sea or did you feel more freedom with the play? Um, you always feel pressure because the arts is madness, you know, and particularly theatre is madness. It's like um, it's miracle making and it shouldn't work, like getting everyone to be organised for five or six weeks to do incredibly difficult things and then to do it every night at exactly the right time. Mm. <laughs> um, but it does work. There's a system for it. But you always feel pressure because it has to be at its best to work. Can't be kind of half good. But apart from that normal pressure, it's been incredibly liberating and freeing doing Jungle in the Sea because I feel like, so the Jungle in the Sea is about a family um, living through the Sri Lankan Civil War and it deals with some of the more recent history that Sri Lanka went through and it is much more about the people living in the north of Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. whereas County Cracking was more set in Colombo. And the north of Sri Lanka is where the most uh, grievous effects of the war happened. Mm -hmm. And it's still a very entertaining show with, you know, there's a love story in it and an impromptu wedding and a cricket match on the way to a beach and all all sorts of fun things. But it also deals with the more difficult subject matter and also kind of wrestles with the question of how to chart a path to justice through all this. Um, And if not for canning and cracking, I would be terrified to an almost unmanageable level doing a play like this yeah. <laughs> um, because of the subject matter. But actually County and Cracking has really, really, well, I feel like we're building a house play by play and County and Cracking put the foundations in. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, because it took six years to convince the Australian arts industry that stories like this were worth telling and it didn't take any time at all for Belvoir yeah. to say, let's do another play. And I... I know that this storytelling can work now. Mm. But I hope I haven't shot myself in the foot by creating such high expectations for audiences that are unmeetable. No, <laughs> we'll I highly happens. doubt that. I mean, we are very <laughs> excited to come see it. Yeah. I'm going to come see it with my family. Um, and I know Fantastic. it's uh, debuting November 12 and running through till December 18. And we'll put all of the links and everything in our show notes for so sure. our audience can get tickets as well. But we are super hyped to come see it. And I really don't think you've shot yourself in the foot. I think it will absolutely <laughs> live up to it. No uh, please come along. For sure. And like Rami said, please do check out our episode notes for where you can get tickets to Jungle in the Sea. Um, something else that excited me reading the synopsis on your website is how the play also draws from two big epics, the Mahabharata, which obviously comes from South Asia, as well as Antigone, which comes from the ancient Greeks. Where did that inspiration for you to pull from those two tales come from? Like, did connecting those dots between your story and those two epics happen organically or is that something that you kind of sought out to do? Um, 
I knew that I wanted to set the next play inside the war and set it in the north of Sri Lanka because I knew that those were the stories that I'd left out of Canning and Cracking. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to, like we've been discussing so much this chat, I didn't want to present a show about hapless people living in a war with no control over their own lives. And, you know, we always see the global majority on TV in wartime as this poor brown people, right? I just, I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to present people with their full dignity. Mm. And even though war is on, life goes on, you know, love still happens, family still happens. You can still be cheeky or sexy or irreverent or joyful or hopeful or, and you make choices. You make choices about what's happening in the world and how you're going to react to that and how you're going to change to that. And so I was talking to Eamon Flack, who I made Canyon Cracking with, who's the artistic director of Belvoir, about making sure that this would be present throughout the work. And he said, oh, you know, I often turn to the Greek classics for help with this because they're kind of um, a timeless way of looking at people dealing with very difficult situations like that. And I said, you know, you're right. Like I've been, the Mahabharata, like the Amachitakata was basically the version of Mahabharata was kind of probably one of the first books I ever read. And so these are the stories that have been with me my whole life. And um, they are timeless stories of how to react to war, how to deal with grief, what to do with families that split. And there's a lot of ancient wisdom in there to do with those things. So delving into those classics basically gave us inspiration points. It's not like there's entire segments of those stories in the play, Mm -hmm. but those who know the Mahabharata well will be able to very clearly see all the influences in the play. And those who know Antigone will be able to see very clear influences in the play. But then as we developed it, something else happened on the other end, which I thought was really lovely, which is those works kind of lift to the level of the mythic. They're kind of um, iconic and bigger than any one time or place. Mm. And giving that power to the people who live through the war in Sri Lanka just felt like a wonderful power to give them, you know, that, Yes, they're living through a war and yes, they're suffering at times, but the way they have control of their lives and what they choose to do about it and to lift their actions to the level of something iconic and mythical felt like a really wonderful way to restore power to them and to lift that story. It it, it means you give a community stories the power that is normally only given to Shakespeare, Mm, you know, and it felt like a good power reversal (laughs) to do that for you know, the people of the funny. Mm. Yeah, that's so incredible. And, yeah. you know, we've spoken a bit about what cutting and cracking meant and stood for. What are you hoping Jungle in the Sea will be remembered for? Or what are you hoping audiences take away? I guess for the Sri Lankan community, I hope it can be a continuation of cutting and cracking in the sense that it allows us to gather many truths about another period in our history and experience that together and acknowledge that that happened in our country and be proud of how those people survived it and remember those who didn't. And through that, I think we have a better chance of a shared future. Mm -hmm. I feel like Sri Lanka is at a crossroads at the moment. It's gone through so much turmoil because of the economic crisis, and that's been incredibly difficult for people over there, and I'm in touch with people almost every day about it. But at the same time, there's always a silver lining in a crisis, and at the same time, There's never been more potential for change in Sri Lanka than now, really probably since independence. And so this is the time really, I think, 
for the community to take a good look at itself and celebrate what it's proud of and be honest about what we're not proud of and come together to, to try and find a different future for that country. So I hope this play can be a small part of that for Sri Lankans. Mm. Um, I think for a wider audience, it kind of does what you were saying earlier, Sandin and Romy, about presenting people as humans and taking them away from the sound bites and the, the media reports. It does that on an even bigger scale than counting and cracking. Because I think almost basically every single person in this show is part of a story that we just don't get to hear in its full complexity ever mm, in public right. life. And yet we report on them so often. Mm. <laughs> like we're always hearing about people who are in a war or in a post-war situation. And I really hope that it, um, people look at it and then not only come to grips with and understand with the dignity that a people of Sri Lanka, a group of Sri Lankans can have living through a war, but that means that they never look again at a media report about any community yeah. going through war mm. again the same way and understand that there is that much yeah. amazing, glorious complexity with any community going through that. Yeah. Um, I guess the final thing is that it's also a, it's really a story of determination and resolve and it's about this family that does everything they can to stay together and I really like a kind of um, classic version of how a family stays together might come from being how a Vani family from Sri Lanka stays together, you know, and just continuing that thread of telling these universal stories through very, very specific communities that hardly ever get a chance to have this kind of spotlight shone on them. Yeah. Incredible. I'm so looking forward to watching it. Mm. We've spoke about this. You mentioned at the beginning that you were a musician. So you are like a master of so many trades, it seems. Master's a big word. <laughs> um, but you also have a creative company that you co-founded with your wife called Karinji, which mm. is incredible. Mm. Um, and you, mm. you mentioned before that you have some exciting projects that are upcoming as part of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Amay and I are both artists, my partner and I. And uh, we met working on a project many moons ago. And so we were collaborating artists before we were in a relationship. We got married and had kids. Um, and that's what that company is called Kurunji. And it kind of presents the work both she and I do. And we had a work at Sydney Festival this year called Su or Stay. That was a collaboration with a group of musicians from Singapore. And Amay sings and she sang in that show as well as acted and I directed it. And so it's just a home for us to continue to develop our productions. And another one that's coming up for me is called The Laugh of Lakshmi and it's a feature film. Um, and for me, it's kind of completes this trilogy of Sri Lankan works I'm developing. Mm -hmm. And the feature film is a little bit set in the war. And then after that set, after the war in Sri Lanka. And it especially focuses on what women have been doing post-war in Sri Lanka to rebuild life in the villages in the north oh, of Sri Lanka. Wow. The way they're doing that through a kind of collectivism where the solidarity with each other is kind of essential to how they're rebuilding. Mm. And a mother goes through that in Sri Lanka. And a son she sent away to Australia when he was very young in parallel pursues a life of individualism in Australia, kind of working his butt off all in the hope of bringing his mother over. And we see these lives develop in parallel, one through a kind of individualistic lens, the other through a communal lens, and they eventually reunite. Right. Wow. And where will people be able to find that? I don't know, man. If all goes well and we get all the finance in place, then we should shoot end of next year and it should come out in 2024. Yeah. We had so many exciting projects to look forward to. I know. <laughs> 
Um, just to wrap up, uh, Romy and I mentioned in a very early episode that in our culture, we call people who are older than us, that we look up to like older brothers, older sisters as either Anna or Akka. And it's like a term of respect for the role that they play as honorary older siblings and mentors. And I think one of the many blessings from starting this podcast is getting to connect with Akkas and Annas like yourself and getting your encouragement and guidance. So firstly, we wanted to say a big thank you for coming on the podcast today, but also say a massive thank you for what you and people like you do to inspire people like us in our community. So thank you, Shakti. Thank you. No, that's really kind of you to say thank you. And what you're doing with this show is really fantastic because on the one hand, it kind of collates all these people who are active in our community and is a resource for people to be able to go and learn from them all through your conversations. But also what you're doing is an act of public vulnerability as well, because I think a lot of these conversations in previous generations, like when I was growing up and certainly our parents, were all had in private these conversations and it was never talked about in an open space. And I think it completely transforms it, talking about it openly and allows us to um, move the conversation forward. So love your work. That means a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We found this to be such a nourishing conversation that really helped us to reflect on our own family's histories and the stories that we don't see enough space for. So we really loved where that chat took us. Yeah, definitely. And for those of you in Sydney who would like to catch Shakti's upcoming play, The Jungle and the Sea, and we strongly recommend that you do, you can grab tickets at belvoir.com.au. The links are in the show notes. Sendin and I will actually both be there on separate days. So if you see us, please do say hello. We'll see you next week for our episode with Avnisha Martins, artist and radio host on Kader 96.1. We'll catch you then. Bye.